0: I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is the Declaration of Independence. is, Is it still a radical idea, or has the concept central to the American ethos undergoing a slow death by way of a thousand cuts? We speak with Harvard professor Danielle Allen and Loyola University law professor Alexander Sessis. That's coming up on the Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. Behold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the most famous sentence in America's founding creed, the beginning of our collective public morality. The nation was birthed on an idea, unprecedented in human history, at a time when America is questioning everything about itself from its political orthodoxies to its belief in liberty and equality, where does the nation hold that radical idea today? Is it an ongoing commitment or is it part of an annual commemoration along with picnics, fireworks, and time off from work? To open our discussion on the Declaration of Independence is Harvard Professor Daniel Allen. Professor Allen is a political theorist and author of our Declaration in this moment that uh, it's, uh, America's go- undergoing this sort of zeitgeist of uncertainty, perhaps not since the 60s, but have we felt these sort of impulses? Uh, but they also move us to become reactionary. Uh, when, uh, how does a declaration play uh, in, into that, or can it play? Does it have a role?
1: It does, absolutely. Um, Most importantly, it um, invokes our most important aspiration to equality, the idea that all people are created equal, and that we build governments to secure the rights of those equal creatures, and it's our job to make sure our governments are securing the rights um, of all of us equal creatures. So obviously the history is complicated, and um, equality was not – you know, applied to everybody at the moment of the writing of the declaration, but the principle stands. It's a principle that we should endorse, and so I think that the time has come to um, have a big public conversation about how to revive our commitments to equality.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, is it um, one of one of my uh, contentions has been that it's um, is the declaration is is experiencing perhaps a death by way of a thousand cuts? So you touched on the history. So it's not just this moment, but throughout our throughout our complicated history, as you, as, you, as you termed it, how do you see it?
1: So, I mean, you're right that we've had these moments where we've had to reimagine the spirit of the Declaration and reclaim it. So Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right, is this incredibly important moment where he says, you know, this country is founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. And that's a kind of defining moment, setting the country in a new direction for a broader embrace of equality and inclusion of African-Americans under that mantle as well. And then, of course, there's Martin Luther King Jr. and what he does with the Declaration of Independence in many of his writings and speeches, and again, the sort of redefinition of the concept. So I think the Declaration, um, it's an animating spirit. So I think the question you're asking is, um, have we really lost the core principles of the Declaration? Have we lost the core political knowledge that it has Um, I think the core principles are in some jeopardy. I think that um, we've gotten in the habit of thinking that liberty and equality are in tension with each other, whereas actually they're mutually supportive of each other. Um, So it's not enough for just some people to be free. Everybody's got to be free, and the only way for everybody to be free is if we pursue equality within the country. So freedom and equality um, reinforce each other, and we have to remember that idea. There's a second question, though, of how we make sure our government – um, acts on our behalf, does its job of securing our rights. And there, I think, actually, the revolutionary spirit is really awake and alive. I mean, I think it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the right or the left. We've seen more grassroots political organization in the last 10 years than in quite some time. So, you know, look at the Tea Party. Look at Occupy Wall Street. Look at Black Lives Matter. Um, people are out there uh, making their voices heard, trying to think through the question of how we craft our world together.
0: Yeah. Um. You you mentioned in your last question, I mean your last answer, sorry, that uh there's sort of a view that liberty and equality are in tension. Um I I I uh I like how you say more about that. I sort of refer to them as the fraternal twins.
1: Yes, yes, that's perfect. Yes. No, I, I do too. I think they are twins. Um they belong together. So, I mean, to be free is to be in a position where nobody can dominate you, and we want freedom for all, and that means that nobody can be dominated by anybody else, and that's just another way of saying equality. So, if you push on the concept of freedom, it takes you straight to equality, and if you push on the concept of equality, it takes you straight to freedom. These things go together, but I really focus on um, the kind of equality we have in our political life. Do we all have um, a voice in our public institutions? Do we all have an ownership stake in our public institutions? Um, do we get the chance to help craft our shared decisions? One of the biggest challenges, I think, about seeing how important political equality is is that it actually puts compromise front and center. If you have an election where fifty percent of the people have voted one way and fifty percent another, or you know, at, you know, fifty point oh two and forty nine point eight, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you're really, you know, nobody should run roughshod over anybody else. There's got to be a compromise there, and a recognition that the voices on the other side need to play into the public decisions that we craft.
0: And you mentioned you mentioned compromise, but it's, uh, it's sort of ironic because part of whatever tension has been created between liberty and equality historically was the result of compromise i'm thinking specifically maybe the three-fifths compromise and then the missouri compromise the kansas-nebraska act so ironically compromise has sort of helped us kick the can down the road at least to that equality piece.
1: you know this is one of the hardest things i think about our constitutional inheritance and our inheritance from the declaration is that the art of democracy requires compromise yet the most powerful example we have about compromise was over slavery and that was a terrible thing and I think the fact that um, the, you know, the place where we, we all know the most about compromise is also the place where we would most reject it now makes it hard for us to learn and to appreciate the art of compromise. So I think we have to separate the idea of what compromise is and what its value is from the history of slavery. How do you do that exactly? I think the way in which you can see compromise as a valuable tool is if any time you're pushing a hard question, you always ask the question, is everybody who's affected by this decision around the table? Is everybody's voice included? We would never have had any of those slavery compromises, right, if right. the voices of African Americans had been included in that decision. So a principle of inclusion makes a principle of compromise valid, I think.
0: Uh, because Just to further that, because the, the irony, uh, I think you and I agree that the Equality and liberty are sort of the pillars that that undergird the nation, but yet what we started with was sort of this creed about equality and liberty on paper, but yet we had sort of a truncated liberty and inequality.
1: So, you know, I think the fascinating thing about the Declaration is that it really spawned two traditions, the tradition of the South and the tradition of the North. And people lose sight of the fact that John Adams, man of Massachusetts who never owned slaves and thought that slavery was a bad thing, was as important a voice in shaping the argument of the Declaration as Thomas Jefferson. And the moment the Declaration was unanimously agreed upon, people started using it for the cause of abolition. The cause of abolition really crystallized around the Declaration of Independence. So the first political entrepreneurs um, in America to make use of the Declaration of Independence and its ideas were people who wanted to get rid of slavery. So an abolitionist, African-American abolitionist in Boston in January 1777, writes a petition pursuing abolition that explicitly invokes the language about all men being created equal. And by 1780, you, you have achieved the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and also Vermont, although Vermont wasn't a state yet. So the point is that we've lost sight of the fact that, um, you know, after the declaration um, was ratified um, by the votes of the, the people of the Continental Congress, uh, it immediately helped spark and crystallize an abolitionist movement. Um, and I think that's a really important part of our history to recover.
0: I'm going to stay with this for a moment because I, I, there's, a, there's a place I want to go with. So I want to have you respond, but I'll, I'll start with this piece. So how does... Uh, uh, the edited version, the, the, when, the, when the, um, we edited out the, the piece on – Jefferson's piece on slavery, mm-hmm. how does that impact – how did that impact going forward historically uh, our, our sort of notion of uh, liberty and equality? Or did it have any impact?
1: So that's a fantastic question, and it's really – it's so important. There are, there are two compromises in the Declaration of Independence. One's around religion, and the other one's about – is around slavery. And so the extraordinary thing is there's one moment in the production of the text where we can see the pro-slavery people getting a victory, and there's a moment where we can see the anti-slavery people getting a victory. The pro-slavery get a victory in the moment when the passage where Jefferson has condemned the slave trade, and he's described it as a violation of the sacred rights of the people in Africa, um, that gets cut out by Congress, and that's a clear victory for the pro-slavery position that doesn't want to ascribe sacred rights to Africans. At the same time, however, at the opening in the preamble, we hear about how you know, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Then we get this list of rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There is a key word missing there, and it's property. Right.
0: That goes back to the Enlightenment, right? <laughs> it, it
1: does, but, the, but more importantly, by that point, 1776, property had become the key term for defending the right to slavery. hmm So the absence of property from that opening list was an anti-slavery approach to the question of how to define the country's new ideals. So the trio of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was an abolitionist, anti-slavery trio, and that's exactly how it was used. So the extraordinary thing is that in this compromise, again, like one piece for the Pro-slavery people, one piece for the anti-slavery people. It was the piece that went to the anti-slavery people that, over the long arc of our history, has controlled it, ruled, so to speak, in legal language. It, it was the the part that made the difference. It's the it's what Lincoln invoked um, in the, again, the Gettysburg Address. Um, it's it's the idea that we have been able to invoke consistently to expand rights. So. Um, so there was a victory there um, for the people who disagreed with slavery, and I think we don't give them enough credit for that.
0: You know, one of the things uh, that, that I've, because I had a, a class I taught this uh, semester at Wake Forest University, and we and we went, um, had a session on the Declaration. And one of the things I found is that some of the students, uh, some, some of the students of color in particular, um, struggle with the Declaration just because of some of the history we just articulated. So if someone is in that social location of, of feeling like the Declaration did not include them, what do you say to them in the 21st century, why this document is still relevant?
1: So, I mean, I say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to remember that, I mean, you know, we make a huge mistake in thinking that, the, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. That's, that's not the case. It was a group of people and John Adams, and, you know, who, again, never helped slaves, thought slavery was a bad thing, was just as important a voice as Thomas Jefferson. So I think we actually really have to connect the document from so being so closely linked to Jefferson's life. Um, I think that keeps us from opening up the document. But then there's the more important thing, which is that the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence is simply one of the most profound statements about human agency that exists, that it's on all of us to survey our circumstances, survey the course of events to identify whether or not governments are securing our rights. And then as the second sentence concludes, um, if any government becomes offensive or destructive of those ends, it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its principle, uh, laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, That is just a description of human agency. We diagnose our circumstances. We prescribe a course of action. We prepare to justify it and advocate for it. That story about human agency is off limits to no one, um, and it should empower everyone. And I think focusing on that and understanding the kind of empowerment that's connected to it is one of the most important lessons there can be. Uh, particularly for people who feel marginalized. For people who feel marginalized, that should speak to you and be a set of resources and tools that you can use to change the world around you.
0: Does the American narrative, in your view, uh, ultimately prove that a a nation uh, committed to both uh, liberty and equality uh, cannot exist uh, applying one or the other?
1: Um, I think if you focus only on liberty, it's very destructive um, over the long term. I think that you'll slip into a context where you actually rebuild structures of domination, um, and that will fragment a community and make it weaker, incapable of sustaining um, itself over time. So, um, yes, on the other hand, I mean, freedom is fundamentally important. If you have an approach to equality that, um, you know, it pursues equality by means of, um, you know, sort of ever-extending sense of restrictions, um, then you're defeating the purpose of the whole thing in the first place, right, which is freedom for all. So, you know, there's no question that it, there can be challenges always, you know, figuring out spec- which specific policies are the best instantiation of a combination of freedom and equality. Um, but you, you do need both um, in either one. You know, focusing exclusively on one um, gets you into trouble.
0: Yeah, yeah, but 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 our history has been one where, when you invariably, the cause for equality, the push for equality, has always been so grudgingly. Why? Well,
1: I think. I mean, I think that's a different matter. In all honesty, um, so um, let's well, the short answer to that question. Um, so, you know, the. The white men who gathered in Continental Congress understood perfectly well that they needed equality amongst themselves to make their liberty real, right? So it's always just been a question of who was included in that, mm-hmm. not a question of whether or not um, liberty and equality were bound to each other. So I think the issue of race, racial domination, and racial hierarchy, that I, I take that to be its own uh, tradition, its own legacy. Um, and to ha- you know, it's intersected with a tradition that's about liberty and equality in ways that have been incredibly damaging and that continue to trouble us today. Um, but so for me, the question there really is um, how to undo um, sort of presuppositions of racial domination, um, how to undo at this point what people refer to as implicit bias um, and subconscious bias, where people just... Have without even realizing it, the kind of gut reaction that white's good and black's bad and so forth down the line. And that affects people's choices, their hiring decisions, uh, policy views, and so forth. Um, so from my point of view, deconstructing that um, is a different project from thinking about liberty and equality. It's a completely necessary project. could not be more important to pursue, um, but I take it to be its own project.
0: And actually, in the, in the genesis of my question, and I apologize if I wasn't clear, the genesis of my question, I was thinking more along the lines of the ratification of the, uh, first of all, the 13th Amendment, and uh, when Charles Summers, uh wanted to put in the clause, I believe, of equality for all, and then sort of the pushback was, well, if we do this, then women uh, might want to have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's sort of, so we can only we can only do one equality at a time. Right. I, that's sort of what...
1: Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, there's sort of, there's a question of the ideals that we ha- have and then the social structures that they get connected to. And so the real issue has been um, that I know it, has, it has taken centuries for the um, ideals of liberty and equality to be applied across, you know, a huge variety of social structures. So not limited merely to um, you know, a group of white men gathering together in Continental Congress in a political body, but also applied to um, the relationship between men and women, and then applied to, or in other order, applied to the relationships among different races. So um, I think one of the funny things about uh, political principles or about ideologies is that they can, get, can, they can be limited to specific institutional and social domains, um, and so that's part of how I think about the work that we have is to to keep expanding the domains to which these principles apply.
0: Have we oversimplified this whole what I like what I like to call uh, this radical idea the spawned a nation is, is it is it just sort of the Fourth of July you know it's fireworks it's a hot dogs it's a ball game three- day weekend and just all these things that you're That you've uh, talked about in your in your in your wonderful book as well in this conversation we're having now, have just sort of got pushed to the side on the periphery.
1: So I think that's a great question, Um, and I think I I think we have simplified the idea. I mean, I think one of the hardest things about the revolutionary idea is that the revolutionary spirit has to be tied to a governing spirit. And I remember sort of in the Arab Spring, um, sort of with the fall of the Egyptian regime and that sort of thing. There were a lot of people who said, okay, first the revolution, then you have to get around to the hard business of building a new democracy. And so you have first revolution and second constitution. Um, in the American experience, it actually went in the um, other order. So before they decided that they were ready to declare independence and, and you know officially launch their revolution, they'd already started writing constitutions for each of the states. So they had figured out the question of how to organize themselves, how to build governing structures, and that was the foundation for their revolutionary activity. And I feel like that's the lesson that we are in danger of losing, that we think that um, sort of you know, taking to the streets is the most important action – Whereas I would actually say planning how you would govern first is the most important action and then take to the streets to make it happen, make it real.
0: So it, it's the, it's the uh, founder's model versus, say, the, the Cuban model. When you have the revolution, then you have to figure out how to govern.
1: Exactly. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, you know, revolution should be an instrument um, for building a new world um, that you already have in mind and already have clarity about. Um, and then I think it's, you know, it's powerful.
0: I mean that that, that that really you had mentioned Adams earlier. I, I recall one of the letters that Adams wrote to Jefferson, uh, where he sort of said that the war itself was not the revolution. That the revolution were in the people's minds. And I know Benjamin Rush says something similar. So that's, that's sort of the vein. That how do we keep that ethos going? Is it how how do we is it, is it just learning more about in civics, or how do we keep that passion?
1: So, you know I think that's one of the hardest questions that there is, and I don't have a good answer. I feel like it's sort of an all hands on deck question. We need every everybody who's civically engaged to reach out and find two people who aren't and uh, try to you know build up their spirit, rouse their spirits. But then I guess I feel like the other thing that we really need to do is um, to figure out how to revive our interest in local government in particular, um, expanding the pool of people who are running for mayor and school board and all the you know, it's an incredible range of offices that we have in this country where people can play a role in shaping and crafting their own community. And I somehow feel as if, um, you know, we we don't have a kind of big um, network of civically engaged people who are constantly rallying one another and expanding the web of people who might be pulled into those Roles And those roles seem to me like the starting point from which everything else flows. And, you know, from there you get people who will be prepared to um, seek office at the level of the state and so forth.
0: Um, I just, uh, before I you let you go, um, I was just thinking as you, you were giving that answer, uh, I'm thinking about some of the decisions we've made in the, in the last decade. I don't, I don't want to uh, relitigate, for example, the Iraq War, but I was wondering if we understood the founding of this nation – um, would we have been as quick to think that exporting democracy was a good idea?
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it would have slowed us down. <laughs> so yeah, I think you put your finger on an important topic there.
0: This is not a comedy show. We're trying to we're trying to hash out serious <laughs> ideals here, Professor Al. Right. Well,
1: you know, sometimes a flash of insight just makes you either want to laugh or cry, right? <laughs> right. So you gave me a flash of insight there. So. Okay.
0: Professor Daniel Allen, Harvard uh, University, thank you so much for being on the Public Morality today.
1: Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Take care.
0: That was Professor Daniel Allen. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation on the Declaration of Independence with Loyola University Professor Alexander Sessis. Professor Sessis is author for Liberty and Equality The True Life and Times of the Declaration of Independence. Welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you so
2: much, Mr. Williams. I really appreciate your having
0: me. Well, please, you, you must call me Byron. That's Those are the House rules. I will only call you <laughs> Byron if
2: you call me Alex.
0: Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. We've okay, we've established some common ground. <laughs> um, you, you know, you contend uh, in, in your book, uh, Liberty and Equality, uh, that from its inception the Declaration is more than a statement of
2: sovereignty. Uh, why do you say that? I think it sets the principles for secular governance, and in the context of your particular show, the uh, secular morality, public morality, that being the uh, protection of individual rights and alienable rights, and, uh, and treating people as equals, as having the same dignitary rights, as well as the criteria for uh, public uh, discourse and representative democracy and that to me is much more than sovereignty you know when we look around the world at other declarations of independence particularly those that were created at the to- a little bit after the revolution and for example latin america and in haiti only haiti had a preliminary preambular statement about uh, human rights the others declared independence and spoke out about the grievances that they had against the, the sovereign, Spain primarily, obviously, in Latin America. Uh, the American Revolutionaries spoke about the source of rights and the source of sovereignty and that being the people and the uh, innate or inborn rights that each of us has on an equal basis.
0: And. I guess so the irony there is that um, uh, given America's inception, it was a document that was birthed in paradox, was it not?
2: It was. I absolutely (laughs) agree with you. It was a time when uh, slavery was still present throughout the colonies and then now into the new states. It was only afterwards that there was a movement to uh, uh, emancipate slaves in some states – it was an immediate emancipation, like in Massachusetts and in other states. It was something that was only uh, 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 that was put off for a time. New Jersey, New York uh, come to mind, and other places, obviously, where slavery was retained. Uh, I think the initial revolutionary period saw slavery as, an, unfortunately, a necessary evil. I hate to use the word. Necessary, but they thought that it would be something that would end. But clearly, thought it was an evil, uh, and only in time, in around the eighteen late eighteen twenties and early eighteen thirties, did people begin to think of slavery as being uh, a public good. With uh, uh, Weiss, the uh, congressman from Virginia and later governor, and, and certainly John Calhoun, but that sort of concept came later. Initially, I think the thought was that. Uh, slavery was an evil, it was contrary to the principles on which the country was founded. The real unfortunate thing, uh, to be honest with you, Byron, is that with some things that we know are evils today, they didn't even really consider them. And particularly I'm thinking about chauvinism against women and their exclusion from voting. Uh, And uh, that they seem to have just been unaware that uh, their general principles could even be applied to people like that. And that's not even everybody, right? Because the vote, which seems to be something that should be of universal right to all adults as being able to voice their opinions of how public morality, secular morality, should play a role about treating people equally and everyone having access to their representative, they didn't even think that that was applicable to non-property white males. So they had... The revolutionaries and the framers had an extreme uh, narrowness in the way that they perceived the principles that they set out. But they set them out in these universal ways that later allowed abolitionists, feminists, manhood suffragists, labor movements, and so on, to use them for the very universal uh, statement that they were that the revolutionaries didn't even conceive of at the founding,
0: um, since you uh, touched on just just sort of what the common attitudes were at the time, um, spend a moment, if you will, discussing um, sort of just how radical the Declaration of Independence is in that uh, liberty, liberty, and equality um, were just not uh, universal concepts
2: globally. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I think they were amongst philosophers. Uh, there were some philosophers like Berlimaki that were already thinking those things. But I absolutely agree with you. Obviously, the American Revolution and uh, the Declaration of Independence is prior to the French Revolution and the the thoughts of the rights of man. So it was a very radical concept at a time when aristocracy was the norm, uh, monarchy was the norm around the world. This thought that sovereignty did not come from an individual or a familial line of uh, monarchs, and that rights were not grants of a sovereign was very radical, right? So in Great Britain, the thought was, where do you get the Bill of Rights? The Bill of Rights is something that the king grants us. These are rights that the king has granted us, wherein the Declaration of Independence the Thought is that they are always with us, they're cited by the Supreme Court into Supreme Court opinions about uh, dignitary rights. So uh, I think the concept of the Declaration was radical in a variety of ways. Number one, that
0: Favorite quotes to you about the revolution, um, and it comes from uh, Benjamin Rush.
2: Oh, wonderful! Yeah, the doctor, the great physician. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the, um, there is nothing more common than to confound the terms of the American Revolution with those of the late war. The American war is over, but it's far from being the case with the American Revolution. On the contrary, nothing but the first act of a great drama is closed. So, first of all, do you agree with Rush's assessment? And if so, how does a nation, birthed on an idea, maintain that sort of radical notion?
2: I, I'm so glad that you read him because he was such a great uh, person. Let me just say a little bit about Russia. Sure, go right ahead, please. Close, very close to John Adams, very close to Thomas Jefferson, just so your listeners understand the the greatness and the importance of the quote uh, that you, of the person whose quote you just picked out and actually helped to reconcile the rift between Jefferson and Adams and was very much involved in, in, in politics. Uh, so I agree with him that, that the revolution was just the beginning, and I and I love, Byron, that you picked that out also because it speaks against, I think, the concept that the really original intent or even the original meaning was that, of that which has to govern us today about the Declaration of Independence, that there was a dearth and a real... Shallowness of understanding of the applicability of what was said at that time. I'll give another example amongst the ones that I've already given. In the Declaration, the uh, Jefferson's draft and then the Continental Congress's vote on the language of the Declaration includes statements against the King's uh, taxing people without allowing representation and uh, closing down courts without allowing them to adjudicate matters. And other, uh, other things. Now, the petition, that idea that people who were taxed were unable to then uh, participate in petitioning and in voting, applied to women and it applied to blacks. The framers didn't understand that they were committing injustices in their time, and yet they laid the foundation, the cornerstone on which later human rights movements acted uh, and which even influenced people, which continues to influence people today, but in a greater way, which Martin Luther King Jr., during his great speech on the March on Washington, Mm -hmm. quoted and influenced the civil rights movement, even even though he demanded that the uh, original promise, the covenant, which the framers had established between themselves as those who could govern and the people who could choose their electorate would be the one that people uh, in government had to abide by in the 1960s and certainly have to continue to abide by and have to learn from today. But through our uh, mentalities and through the development of public morality, that has taken a couple of centuries. And I think, It's unending in our recognition of our own shortcomings and and, uh, the ability to have new laws that then spring up from that public morality and develop secular morality, I must say, right? So I think that's critical, and uh, that help to guide us into new laws and advancements that are true to the principles that were laid out in 1776.
0: Well, first of all, let me just say, uh, before I get to my next question, that you have an open invitation Cause you have plugged public morality in every one of your answers, and so <laughs> you, anyone who does that can come back anytime they want. <laughs> oh, I, I would be
2: honored to. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> All right, um, you, you know one one of the things um, that sort of fascinating to me are, are are the unintended consequences of of even the, our best intentions, and one of the un- unintended consequences to me seems that if you take the words of the Declaration, it actually put the nation in tension with itself, given how it sort of, those words played out in practice.
2: Yes, and I think besides putting the nation, besides the fact that it put the nation in tension with itself, it put the nation in tension with its Constitution, because the Constitution was a compromise with evil. The Constitution itself, the original document in 1789, mm-hmm. as it was ratified, did have provisions that protected slavery: the Three Fifths Clause, the Fugitive Clause, the Trade Clause, even the Commerce Clause, really, which later on, in the uh, in a later period in the 1960s, the court used to protect civil rights in the early ages of the democracy of the republic. It was used in order to protect the interstate state protection of uh, the interstate exchange and slaves. So even the Constitution uh, had, had, in order to to get the ratification of all the states, uh, the Constitution itself had already failed it to live up to the standards of the Declaration of Independence. So, but to me. The Declaration of Independence is unamendable in a way that the Constitution, fortunately, was amendable to get rid of those evils. But the Declaration of Independence, if we fail, if we do not continue to abide by the standards of inalienable rights, equality, representative government, government is made for the safety of the people, that government is made for the people, that that that, uh, the legislation cannot be legislature cannot be shut down sponte, at the will of the executive, the way that King George III did it, the way that Hitler did it in Nazi Germany, it, the way that totalitarian regimes have done it throughout the world, that if we fail to abide by those standards, an independent judiciary, then we have failed in the very foundations of the Constitution, the, the, that which lies at the base of the Constitution, the ideals that are not just ideals of principle and aspirations, but obligations, aspirational obligations for what the, co- the nation must be as a constitutional Republican democracy.
0: You know, not to um, uh, put a political spin on this, but um, dare I say that I, I hear you advocating for a strict constructionist application to liberty and equality.
2: I don't know if I, I – wouldn't say it's – I'm saying strict constructions because I, uh, unless we're understanding the terms differently, maybe you can help me <laughs> use that. But I'm, I think of it as something that allows the deliberative voices of each of us, no matter how unorthodox our views are, no matter how uh, how conservative our voices are, in order to be able to debate with each other to discuss what is equality, what are the inalienable rights, and that seems to be an unending quest. The other thing that my, my ideas, or maybe, maybe even my plea for the continued relevance of the Declaration implies, is that the, the United States Supreme Court should not be the sole arbiter of what our, our rights are. We, the people, should be able to petition our legislators and say, well, we think school, for example, education is an inalienable right, something that the Supreme Court has said it, that education is not a fundamental right. In my opinion, we should be able to petition mm-hmm. our legislators and say, well, we, the people, do think it's a fundamental right. Maybe it's not the one I'm saying. Maybe it's not education, but whatever that is. And that seems to be not just a strict, constructive prog, uh, pro, uh Strict constructive method, but rather something that allows us to grow. And again, that it allows our morality to grow as a people and for us to figure out what would be more true to our statement of purpose as a government and what where we continue to fail those principles.
0: Uh, would it be fair to offer uh, that... Uh, if, if we can agree that liberty and equality are, are, are the two pillars in which the, 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 the nation's uh, ethos stands, uh, rests, would it be fair to suggest that liberty enjoyed an, uh, at best an 89-year head start on equality?
2: I think that's a great point. Uh, equality was not mentioned in the in the original Constitution, which I think exactly is what you're getting at, mm-hmm. and and it only became mentioned in the Equal Protection Clause in uh, after, during the Reconstruction Amendments following the Civil War in the late 1860s, and the, the source of equality was where abolitionists got William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, where feminists like uh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone, and others got. The, 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 the or, or anchored their equality concepts was in the Declaration of Independence. And in my opinion, and here I have a very heterodox opinion, mm-hmm. the Declaration of Independence became incorporated into the Constitution. In other words, became a substantive obligation.
0: Mentioned a few moments ago, the, that the Declaration was birthed in uh, paradox. And on that note, um, would but it, it also be fair? Uh, I feel like you know you're the, you're the law professor here, and I'm the student asking all these questions. But would it be fair to, to suggest uh, that it was the failure to live up to the, maybe the ideals in the Declaration that sort of gave us the Civil War? But yet, it were those ideals that held the Union together.
2: It was. Certainly, those ideas that held the union together. Yes, absolutely. I think not the Confederacy. No, no, <laughs> the Confederacy. No, 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 Well, so let me let me say that that's a very uh, that's a profound question that you ask because the Confederacy thought the Declaration of Independence was a statement of state sovereignty, which I you know, which allow, which the South believes or the Confederacy in particular believed. Uh, that it was a justification for each state to decide whether or not it had slavery. But as for the Union side, I mean, looking at the views of Abraham Lincoln, with the Declaration being uh, an apple of gold that uh, the nation should, that shined for the nation, and the radical Republicans who were the mainstay of the uh, movement to get new, uh, amendments to the Constitution to make it more true to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Um, I think was absolutely a core that wove the Union together and made it realize that it wasn't just that it was it would have been wrong to gather in the Confederacy without making certain that slavery ended and that uh, the nation lived up to the standards which it set from the very beginning.
0: I know that you have debated um, and talked on this issue many, many uh, times. Uh, is is the? I'm going to say it this way: Is the so-called tension between liberty and equality that's embedded in the Declaration a false choice.
2: It is something that people definitely distinguish. It should be a false choice. We should not think that we can that individuals can advance their liberty without also advancing equality. And I think that your example just a minute ago of the Civil War is a great one. So it is feasible to conceive that Southerners believed that by keeping slaves, that they were advancing their own liberty, they were freer to have more wine, to to wine and dine instead of having to work the land. Uh, You know, they were, that they thought that they were advancing their freedom, but ultimately because they didn't give equality, because they didn't realize that it was necessary everyone to be treated at, at the, on the same level of uh, legal uh, for, for law to apply to everybody in the same way, they wound up having a civil war. So in that way, it was a false dichotomy. This thought that they could advance their own group's liberty without also advancing equality. In the same way we might say, uh, since we've been talking about women's rights, this thought that by excluding women we could advance liberty in this country excluded an entire talent pool, uh, an entire half of the population and their ability to speak out and to tell us ways that we could improve our governance. And that is a matter of equality. And uh, liberty is is advanced, I think, through equal treatment, because where one of us is hurt, all of us are hurt. Where, for example, if there's police brutality somewhere and there's inequality in the treatment of people based uh, in in the way that – Police force treats individuals. That doesn't just hurt the individuals. It doesn't just hurt the community that's particularly attacked. It it hurts all of our liberties because all of us then have to be uncertain about our welfare and about uh, how we, we what might be ha- what might happen when there's indiscriminate uh, use of force.
0: If you're just joining us, uh, I am speaking with University of Chicago Law Professor Alexander Tessis. Um, and, his, uh, and also author for liberty and equality, and I want to talk uh, about about that book for just a moment, because one of the things that really jumps out for me in your work, sir, is that many, if not all, of America's seminal moments, dom- at least domestically, you find the ethos of the Declaration of
2: Independence s- somewhere. Is that was that, was that fair? I, I, I think so, and I, and I think that that's a really remarkable point uh, that you just made because if we look again at other declarations throughout the world, they just, I mean, they're, they're historical documents. They're important to read. They're important to, to understand because they provide the background behind the decision of various nations, you know, whomever it might be, uh, Bolivia or Venezuela or whatever country it might be, for why they demanded that they have sovereignty rather than to be a colon- to be have a colonial power over them, but the Declaration really has come in constantly and regularly into uh, major movements uh, throughout our history, and I believe it, it's a reason why we continue to read it on the Fourth of July. If it were just a Historical relic, it would be important to put into our children's textbooks and to have some mention of it, but to the extent that all of us, or almost all of us, have heard a reading of the Declaration and have in some way been inspired or at a minimum recognized what is expected of us as citizenry. novel that healthcare
0: Turn if I could um, to the to the unintended consequences because um, uh, again this question is definitely your fault because it's sort of the it's sort of all the you got me thinking when I was reading your book so you you have to take full responsibility for this next question um, could an argument be made that um, the point that you made about the Reconstruction Amendments um, and then I think it was Charles Sumner. Who proposed uh, equality for all in the 13th Amendment, and and some of the pushback there was? Well, no, that would maybe you know maybe the women would want to vote if we if we put that in there, and but then because women were excluded in the 15th Amendment that gave black men the right to vote, is that the genesis of the identity politics that we have today?
2: Uh. I think that there is clearly identity politics in the sense that there was a recognition both in the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that there are certain groups that have a history of discrimination uh, for, for, for whom it is legitimate for government to have a special care to prevent the majority from violating those inalienable rights of which the Declaration speaks. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that you ask about the 13th and the 15th Amendment. I have, a, I've written, I have a book on the 13th Amendment and also a compendium of articles on the on the 13th Amendment. And when you look at the debates on that, of course, the 13th Amendment was the one that abolished slavery and it gave Congress uh, – the power to continue to pass laws that would uh, prohibit states and individuals from perpetuating slavery and the badges and incidents of voluntary servitude. And the Congress uh, in 1866, just a year after ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865, passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And that law continues to be good law. It prohibits discrimination in contracting, discrimination in courts, discrimination in real estate purchases. And in the debates on the 13th Amendment, both in eighteen well in 1863 and then on to 1865 until its ratification, there is extensive discussion about the Declaration of Independence and discussion of it as um, the reason for, for passing ratifying, passing through Congress and then, then moving on to the states for ratification, this new, this new law that would allow for Congress to pass additional civil rights protection. Now, in part, it was definitely identity politics, and particularly the Civil Rights Act of 1866, because the Black Codes were instituted uh, in many southern states throughout the South, uh, as a way of perpetuating de facto slavery, slavery was ended. The jury; it was ended by law, but in fact, they tried to continue slavery uh, uh, by, for example, having contract laws where a slave owner wouldn't pay his slave, his ex-slave. After this is after abolition, so wouldn't pay an ex-slave until the end of a year of work, and so that forced people to work in a particular place or uh, plantation owners who refused to hire. People who had been slaves elsewhere onto their plantations, and that limited people's ability to move around. And the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which also the legi- the Senate and the House of Representatives debates often speak of the Declaration of Independence, do clearly have this identity politics that they recognize that black codes are passed in order to perpetuate slavery. So, and it's. So true, you know. Of course, you mentioned the feminists and the fact that number one, uh, as you said, uh, women are not were not ex- included in the Fifteenth Amendment, and number two, that the which you didn't mention, the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Two is the first time that male the word male is used in uh, the Constitution, and that uh, Section Two it says. <laughs> Two, there would be reduction of voting power of the states, and so uh, and the feminists stood up and they and, and uh, they certainly moved their cause forward. Where I think that the feminists of that time um, were incorrect was that they believed that people like Frederick Douglass, the ex-slave and the tremendous order
0: abolitionists. And-
2: and saw freedom, as well as William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips, they thought that in moving the cause of freedom, and particularly the cause of blacks' ability to participate equally in society before they did for women, was a renouncing of of feminist ideals, that is to say equality for women. I don't think that was true at all. I think um, that Douglas and Garrison and Phillips and many others in that movement uh, who saw that there was a need for identity politics because blacks were, the, were had the lowest rung on the ladder of rights. They had to be uplifted first, that throughout the rest of their lives, uh, James McPherson has a beautiful book on this about the um, post-Civil War actions of abolitionists. Uh, McPherson having written the incredible uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book on uh, civil, civil War, uh, Battlecraft Freedom. And he talks about what these abolitionists did in the aftermath of abolition, and many of them continued to act on behalf of women's rights. And, and of course, we know that at least in part of the conclusion was the 19th uh, Amendment. So I think it's very legitimate to try to see where the most vulnerable parts of society are and then to act in order to better and make uh, equality real for those parts of the community.
0: Alexander Sessis, law professor, author. Sir, I would like to thank you for being on the Public Morality Day. You honored us very much.
2: Byron, I'm deeply grateful to you for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much.